don't worry, we are not going to go deep on cryptocurrency or Bitcoin, but we are going to use it as a launching off point for a conversation about ego, fame, stardom, and altruism. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man? Not so much, Steve. I am glad to be here recording with you today. We've got a really interesting conversation planned that we're going to be having in real time. Not a lot of prep because we are going to riff on some breaking news. But before I set that up for the listeners, Steve, why don't you tell everyone how they can support the show? All right. So if you've listened before, you might notice that we don't pitch, you know, magic supplements or sunglasses or whatever have you that's going to make your life better. The reason we don't do that is because we just want to be authentic. So instead, the way we keep this podcast and everything that we do going is through our Patreon. So if you want to check out the Growth Equation Patreon, not only do you support this, you get monthly book clubs, you get access to a quarterly mastermind group, you get uh, signed copies of our, our latest book or our newest book. Uh, we have all sorts of other goodies as well. You get discounts on on merch, all sorts of great stuff. So check it out. It's at patreon.com backslash the growth equation. All right. Well, I'm going to set the stage for today by going over some of the current events of the last week. So as many of you know, Steve and I are not super into cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. It's probably the first time you've heard those two words on this podcast. And don't my, worry, my entire savings are in them, Brad. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm, don't worry. I'm we are... We are not going to go deep on cryptocurrency or Bitcoin, but we are going to use it as a launching off point for a conversation about ego, fame, stardom, and altruism. And the backdrop is this past week, one of the largest companies in cryptocurrency called FTX uh, pretty much went bust in a nutshell. And the CEO and founder of FTX is a guy named Sam Bankman-Fried. And his net worth went from something like $32 billion down to close to zero in about two days. And what seems to have happened is that Sam Bankman-Fried had some other companies, one of which was known as Alameda Research. And the early reporting shows that he was basically running a Ponzi scheme between these two companies. So he would back FTX in equity that he said that he had in Alameda Research while also backing Alameda Research in equity that he said that he had in FTX. Some of the largest, most prestigious venture capital firms were huge investors, including Sequoia, who wrote down a $250 million investment to zero. And many people that were involved in cryptocurrency had a lot of money in FTX. So my understanding, again, is somewhat crypto naive, is FTX is basically like a marketplace clearinghouse for cryptocurrency. And like any bank that goes bust, if you had a million dollars in the bank and the bank no longer has that money, they can't honor your withdrawal. So 
not only did Sam Bankman Fried and his company seemingly lose all its value overnight, but many people who had tons of money in the FTX market are currently unable to withdraw that money. So why are we talking about this today? Well, what's really interesting is over the last year, Sam Bankman-Fried, who I believe is 29 years old, so a really young guy, was kind of held up as like this perfect CEO, the savior of crypto. And what's really interesting is not only was he known as being super smart and savvy in the crypto space, but he was also heavily involved in a movement called effective altruism, which basically says that we should try to make as much money as possible and then donate that money to the most efficient, effective charities. So effective altruism says, hey, think twice before becoming a pediatrician and go be an investment banker because you'll make a lot more money and then you can give that money to charity. Now, effective altruism was in large part started by a philosopher named William McCaskill, who we both think is a really brilliant guy. Uh, this is not a rib on effective altruism per se, but it is very interesting that this person with a kind of do-good altruistic story ended up really building a house of cards that cost a lot of people a ton of money. And the one other thing that I'll set as context is a big part of effective altruism is this very long-term view, which you'll hear about on our podcast where we talk about some of our favorite books next week. But basically, long-termism says we should care a lot about future generations too. So why do we spend all this money trying to help kids with asthma today when we don't spend as much money worrying about nuclear disarmament per se? And one of the biggest knocks on long-termism, it's a knock that I had while reading a book about it, is, well, it's intellectually very sound and interesting. It also can help people hide from their actions today with means justify the ends thinking for tomorrow. So if I'm Sam Bankman fried running this huge Ponzi scheme, I can be like, you know, it's okay because all this money I'm going to donate to charity if it's going to help future generations. So that is our setup. I rambled on a lot. It was a little bit disjointed. I'm going to bring it together by saying we're going to talk about two things. The first is this notion of what should we think of optimistic, wonder kid, do good for the world, CEOs that unfortunately tend to have pretty rough downfalls. I'm thinking of Elizabeth Holmes. I'm thinking of Lance Armstrong in the sporting world. I'm thinking about just every guru in the spiritual yoga space, Bikram the most notable. So that's the first element. The second element I think we should do, Steve, is a really interesting conversation on long-termism and altruism and the trade-offs we make when we say, hey, we want to get really proximate and focus on what's in front of us versus when we say, hey, I want to take a huge swing at something that I'm a little bit removed from. All right. Let's do that. So I'm going to start actually with this uh, long-termism. We're going to go in reverse order here, if that's okay, Brad. Um, because I was listening to a interview with uh, Douglas Rushkoff, who's kind of a philosopher and writer, and you just talked about this kind of ends justify the means, and he conceptualized what this attitude that we're seeing right now with this kind of, uh, you know, with what happened with FTX and, and so forth. He said it was Jeremy Bentham on acid and steroids analysis of the utilitarian promise of our future. 
in in many ways, if we take long termism or effective altruism to the extreme, that's what we're getting because what we're essentially saying is there are whatever eight billion people on the planet, but if we project this out to you know thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of years, you're looking at, well, 8 billion compared to whatever, I don't know, 100 trillion, like, do we really matter that much anyways? Like the individual person is kind of negated. And in some ways that can be, again, if used appropriately, could be a perspective changer saying, hey, it's more than just you. But if you take it to the extreme, then it's not just a perspective changer. It's a kind of permission to say, all right, like, you know, what's wrong if I screw over a couple people here in the in the for the good of, you know, trillions in the future, which is can kind of be a, a mindset shift that can go in the wrong direction. And I think one other thing I'd, I'd say on this as well that we neglect in this kind of long-termism or effective altruism, whatever you want to call it, you know it better than I do. But this combination is, I think, the the human and psychology component. So before we got on this podcast, I did a little research under looking at um, empathy, compassion, and uh, ethical behavior as we gain in power or wealth or social status. And all of the research essentially shows that like, as you gain in wealth, power, social status, whatever combination, your likelihood of, of cheating, lying, engaging in unethical behavior in the workplace, like all go up. Your ability for empathy, compassion, like seeing others in a way that isn't kind of utilitarian all goes down your your kind of perspective taking all goes down we lose the ability to kind of like read other people's emotions and feel the compassion with that as well and this is a a wide array of research and there's also research people might say well is it is what way does the causality go and that's a really tricky uh, thing to unpack here but in some of the research i was reading they would prime people for either power or status by like changing the comparison point. And all of the sudden they would be, you know, act in the next part of the study, less ethical, have less compassion or empathy or whatever have you. So there's a real kind of psychological phenomenon that goes on as we kind of like rise through the ranks again, not for everybody, but in general. And I think this is where, if we're looking at kind of the optimistic view of kind of this, again, EA, effective altruism, long-termism, like, yes, in, in the sense it, make, it, it makes good sense, but it also takes away, well, that empathy, compassion, like perspective ability almost detrains like a muscle <laughs> because yeah. it's not used as much because as you get more power, like your world narrows, your community narrows, you lose perspective on the real world, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I have a couple of things that I want to add to this, Steve. I think that those are really interesting points um, bared out by the research. The first is that it both extremes, a long-term and a short-term view are probably detrimental. So the ultimate short-term view says we should drill baby drill to live the best lives and eliminate suffering today 
And who cares if the planet's going to blow up in 200 years because we won't be here. That is about as short term as you can get. That is no care for future generations, future lives, future happiness. The opposite of that says we should use no resources to treat young pediatric patients in hospitals because they're really expensive to treat. And instead, we should invest all of that money in climate change and nuclear disarmament because there's going to be billions of future lives. So why focus on saving you know, a couple hundred now versus a billion? In that, unless you have no empathy, no emotional bandwidth, is basically impossible. So these are like good tools. And I think when taken to their extreme, both views are wrong. I think there's an argument that is the argument that the long-termist movement in William McCaskill makes in his book that I found really compelling, but the pendulum has swung recently to a lot of short-term thinking. And we're seeing the results of that in two big areas. He discusses both extensively. One is climate change, and then the other is nuclear disarmament. Like, it's crazy that there are enough nuclear weapons where if, you know, they get drunk behind the wheel, like they could basically end civilization. That is nuts that such a scientifically advanced, uh, connected world is still in this. And McCaskill says it's because we don't pay enough attention to it. Why? Because A, it's uncomfortable, and B, it would affect future generations. However, at the other end of the spectrum, I think that you get this issue that Steve talks about with the empathy gap and the compassion gap. And I just think it's a result of not having skin in the game. So the total opposite of this that is a well-known personality is Brian Stevenson. So the death row attorney that represents defendants in the South, the movie and miniseries, I think there was a miniseries, maybe just a movie, Just Mercy was made about him. And um, researching for my next book, I read his uh, some of his writing, and he talks about the importance of getting proximate to the problem that you're working on. So even though he's risen to notoriety and he runs a huge foundation and he could have teams of lawyers and he does, he still goes into death row all the time to get really close to the suffering. And he says that if he didn't do that, he wouldn't make right decisions. So Stevenson is the total opposite, right? A long-termist would say, why are you using all your clout and research and intellect to spend a day one-on-one with a single prisoner? And what Steven said would say is, I'll tell you why, because I'm not off in la-la land, in intellectual masturbation world, just thinking about the Twitter, I am proximate to the issue, and that forces me to have skin in the game, and as a result, I'm wiser. Now, William McCaskill, again, kind of known as the founder of long-termism and effective altruism, he addresses this by saying that it's a valid concern, but he doesn't take it too seriously because he's yet to see evidence of it causing harm. And there... I would push back and say, there's a lot of evidence of it causing harm. You know who else is a on-the-record, effective altruist, long-termist? Elon Musk. You know who's known as a real asshole to his employees and the people that are actually in his life? Elon Musk. But if Elon Musk can say, I don't care about my people in my life and my employees, I care about going to Mars because I think climate change is real. And if the earth gets too hot, I want humanity to continue. Or... Who cares if my workers at the plant in um, Northern California all get COVID? We need to have an electric grid and electric cars because of climate change. So the knock on this long-termist stuff is, again, it can really justify like megalomaniac asshole behavior now for some future good. 
And it can feed people with big egos and messiah complexes and make those even bigger. So I think that that is ultimately the rub. And and, and what the earlier reporting on Sam Bankman-Fried bears out is that he was, in his own mind, very much dedicated to this effective altruism movement. And people that were interviewed that were close to him said that he wasn't an asshole. So then the question becomes, all right, if he was an asshole megalomaniac, well, then he's just a jerk and we shouldn't feel too bad for him. I'm not justifying fraud or a Ponzi scheme at all, but it's a lot more intellectually interesting to discuss, well, what happens if he genuinely believed that he was doing this super noble mission to create all this money that he could give to great charities, and so what if a few rich people or crypto bros get screwed? Now, I, I, I mean, the answer is obviously it's wrong. You can't engage in fraud because in like a philosophical, you know, uh, kind of like hypothetical situation, if you, if you say that means justify the ends, then we could pretty much justify any negligent behavior, and that's no way to live. So I think the first thing is my guess is in the press in the coming days and weeks, we're going to see a whole lot of extreme thinking on effective altruism and long-termism and throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think it's a really good concept, but like so many of the issues that Steve and I broach, I think where we're going to come out here is that it's just that. It's a concept, it's a tool for thinking, and when taken to the extreme, it can cause harm or at the very least mask harm. Yeah, I th- you know, I think it. a lot of it is that pendulum of either side. And like most things, what we do is we bounce from extreme to the other extreme. And the magic is often in the middle, not always, but often in the middle. And I almost seem it, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I kind of equate it to a concept I talked about in Do Hard Things in relation to your attention going from either narrow or broad and how that helps in performance settings and being able to like zoom in and zoom out to me, instead of thinking of like long-termism or short-termism, I think it's like, do you have the capacity to zoom in when it matters and zoom back out when like it matters in the other directions? Like you need to have both. And that's where I think sometimes we get stuck is if we don't have that self-awareness, if we have those tendencies to be a megalomaniac, or if, you know, not even that, if we get so rich, I mean, here's the thing. If you're a 29-year-old who all of a sudden is worth 20-whatever-billion-dollars, like, you're essentially a kid. I mean, not a kid, but, like, you know what I mean? You're, like, in terms of wisdom, your wisdom is very low, Right? It's like just how things work. So you get thrown all this money, all this cash. And like, yeah, when you were worth, you know, $60,000, like you had these beliefs and you're going to carry them through. But like, as we talked about in the, the research on compassion, empathy, like that sudden change in status, attention, like power, financial, you know, ability, like shifts how we behave, whether we like it or not. And often we're blind to the facts of or the reality of of how they that shifts us. And I think there's just a lot of, I don't know. To me, it, it screams of a little bit of like justifying the fact that we have 
a lot of billionaires and trying to use them to our advantage or like the advantage of society. When in reality, we should ask the question, which is the first one you pose, like, should we give these billionaire CEOs, gurus of whatever, like all the attention and power that they have, because maybe they aren't as smart or they aren't geniuses, or maybe they are just, you know, regular guys who hit the lottery to some extent and had some hard work or whatever and and like aren't the best people to make these decisions and then it's really hard not to become cynical or at the very least so skeptical that you're almost cynical right because it used to be all right you go into finance you work on wall street and you just say i'm gonna make a hundred million dollars and money is the scoreboard and that's all i care about and it used to be like yeesh like kind of a douchebag, but hey, now we can say, well, at least that guy's being honest because now what you get is I'm going to make $100 million and I'm going to have everyone know my name, but I'm doing it because I'm going to give it to charity and I'm going to do it in an effective way. And then we all fawn over these people. But what if under the hood, it's just the same ego and maybe the Wall Street douchebag is at least being honest about his intentions and motivations. Now, if you believe that, which I don't fully, although it is like, unfortunately kind of convincing. Well then how, like, how do you not become cynical that anyone that says they're taking a big swing at like changing the world is just an egomaniac that's full of crap. Um, and there are a lot of notable examples. Like, obviously there's this one that we're talking about with Sam Bankman fried Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos to an extent, Lance Armstrong, right? He's doing this all for cancer patients and cancer survivors. He kind of was able to um, extend his cheating by masking scrutiny with a noble cause. We've got all of these spiritual leaders and yoga teachers that turn out to just be like, you know, serial sexual assaulters. Um, Who's left? And this kind of brings me back to my favorite book of all time, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, where... Robert Persag is in this dialogue and it's about, you know, having this big impact on the world and changing the world and making the world a better place. And he basically says, I just want to like do a good job fixing a motorcycle and I want to write a couple good sentences. And that's what living a moral life is. And, um, man, like that really kind of rings true. But where I struggle and why I'm kind of biting my lip and repeating myself here, Steve, is like, I don't, I don't think it's a healthy outlook to be like anyone with a lot of money that says that they want to make the world a better place is full of it and they just have a big ego. But then again, that's kind of the track record. Like there aren't too many counterfactuals. And that's maybe because all the people that actually want to make the world a better place are not tech giants. They're artists, they're pediatricians, they're teachers. They're not worrying about saving the world from, you know, the next pandemic in long-termism because they're worried about taking care of their aging parent right now. But you need both because if all we did is that, then we would like that. That's why this is such a tricky issue for me, at least. Yeah. You know, a lot of it is, is I, I think you're right. And I think maybe it's the reframing of what we see of the the tech CEOs or the billionaires or like the leaders or what have you, what we see them as. Like often to succeed in the capitalist game of America, 
you know, to reach the height of Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, like sometimes you do have to encapsulate that almost like winner take all survival mode to get there. And like sometimes you do have to be motivated to an extreme of whatever, making a billion dollars or whatever it is. And when your motivation has been in that direction to get you to the top, it's really hard to shift and change that motivation once you're at the top. Now, some people do it, you know, some, whatever you think of them, the classic argument is like Bill Gates, like was kind of a ruthless asshole while guiding Microsoft, but has, you know, spent a ton of money, et cetera, you know, looking at things like how, can we teach kids better? How do we support teachers? You know, vaccines, all that good stuff. There are world changing, but I I don't know. I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of searching here in this answer because I think it is like, we have to acknowledge that maybe, you know, the CEO billionaire isn't going to be that they're not going to have a high degree of altruism because that's not what's normally going to lead them there. So maybe we shouldn't look for them for that solution in society, right? And I, I don't know. I just think it's kind of this this kind of this weird puzzle. The other way I'd put it to bring it back to athletics is that there are very few Eliad Kipchoge's who if you like look at, at what he does, he's like, you know, kind of lives the philosopher monk style there's a lot more i think lance armstrong's in athletics than kipchoge's and you know at the highest level and i don't know if what that says about society or athletics but i i don't think our solution is to be like well we have to wait for everyone to kind of be kipchoge we have to acknowledge that a lot of people are going to be kind of assholes like lance armstrong yeah, and 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 then um, and then not become cynical or not dismiss anyone with like a big idea and a big bold vision as an asshole right off the bat, but to realize that by pursuing that or even by having that, it kind of disposes you to think that you're the only person that can make this change. So you probably have like some narcissistic tendencies, and if those aren't channeled really well. And controlled, then they could get out of hand. And even if this is what we wrote about in our second book together, The Passion Paradox, even if what starts out is a really noble pursuit can turn pretty ignoble pretty fast once you get swept up into um, the publicity, the fame, and the status. And I think the status thing is real too, because again, the old model of the Wall Street guy wanting like the, the Lexus and the Rolex wasn't so much about status as money. And I think it's a little bit harder now in, in, in the tech community because it's like, you know, we wear hoodies and blue jeans. It's less like the number on the scoreboard. It's more the status. It's the cover of the magazine. It's the person that's genuinely, um, or at least wants to be thought of is like genuinely trying to, to change the world and, and make it a better place. It, um, it, yeah. I, yeah. Go ahead. I, I think you're right on. Another thing I'd add into that status is status could change us. And I think it's, it's, it's again, finding that balance between like being cynical and skeptical. Another example I'll give is, you know, in my career, I've been fortunate enough to, especially in athletics, meet a lot of world-class performers. 
you know, first in track and then now in other sports and all that stuff. And, you know, when you're a kid, you almost like hold these people up of like, oh, these are the best in the world. Like, you know, this is whoever, Michael Jordan or LeBron James or the equivalent in another sport. And when you meet people, what you quickly realize is that they're just kind of human beings, meaning that some are like genuine great people who also are the best in the world. And others are, we'll use the Lance Armstrong, like guys who are kind of, you know, kind of a dick and who I wouldn't want to be friends with or what have you. And they span that spectrum. And I think too often what happens, you know, I'm using athletic examples, but I'm positive, you know, or pretty sure it's the same if we looked at tech CEOs or gurus or what have you is like, they are people and they span that gamut. Some are going to be great. You know, even the billionaires, some are going to be like, you look at this guy and you're just like, yeah, that guy's kind of, you know, not someone I'd want to be friends with. And I think the more we can see like even high status people as, as people in some regard, I think it, it allows us to get rid of some of that cynicism because we're just kind of seeing them for who they are. Like, you know, Elon Musk has done some great things with Tesla and, you know, SpaceX, but you know, on Twitter, he's no different than like a lot of uh, Twitter at addicted trolls that I know, and then are kind of dicks. And then I wouldn't want to work for Musk, even if he's doing some good things with Tesla, I wouldn't want to work for him. Speaking or- of which, as you say this, I just pulled it up um, because I was very curious what he's tweeting. He His most recent tweet is he just publicly fired a Twitter engineer who had tweeted something that he didn't like on Twitter. So there you go. Exactly. So it's, it's kind of like that is like some of these people, like instead of what I'm saying is instead of holding them up as heroes or saviors or what have you, like we need to see them as, as people. And sometimes, you know, the, the people who make it maybe a Musk or a Zuckerberg or whatever in tech, like, you look at their trajectory and you're like, oh, of course, they're kind of like different and like, you know, maybe out there and maybe kind of sometimes an asshole to work with. I'm painting broad brushes, but, you know, if someone handed handed me billions of dollars or millions of dollars at, you know, in some of these cases, 19, when my only exposure was, you know, a year of college or not even college around people, it makes sense that their world is going to be shaped in a different, weird kind of, you know, diluted aspect because they're like they didn't have that growth maybe around normal, regular people that you and I did going through college and then our first job and all that stuff. So it makes sense that their mindset is kind of different. So this rambling, all I'm saying is I think it would help us all if instead of seeing like heroes, saviors, you know, best whatever, we just kind of see them as complex human beings, some who are assholes, some who are, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, but like they're humans and that's what they are. Yeah. And you know, the person who comes to mind for me, as you say, this is, um, Barack Obama, because the number one rip on him from the current progressive left is like, he didn't take enough big swings and like, he wasn't, um, he wasn't bold enough. And I'm thinking like he was just like a like he he maintained like humility is like a normal dude doing the best he could in a really hard job. Um, 
and it's just funny how like even from his own party that's the biggest critique is that like he didn't try to do more he didn't piss more people off he didn't swing for the fences i'm not saying it's good or bad but i'm saying like is a person politics aside i always go like when we have these conversations i'm always like he's kind of the outlier because yeah. whatever your politics like no one that worked with him had anything bad to say. He's like a mensch. He's a good guy. He's a good husband. He's a good dad. He was like open about his smoking habit and tried to quit. Just a good dude. And it's funny though, how that's become his biggest knock by his own side. Yeah. You know, it's just, and on the, on the kind of, not the flip side, but similarly and kind of oppositely, but like you have someone like Jimmy Carter, who historically was probably not that great of a president, but, was is like a fantastic human being right and in that to me encapsulates like the complexity and the nuance of this stuff where like it's not like are you good or bad it's that like there's complexity here like some people who are great human beings might not be great presidents some people who are whatever you know not the nicest might lead world-changing companies and I think it's okay to see an app actually necessary to see the complexity and nuance in this instead of creating caricatures, which doesn't help anybody. Yeah. And then um, back to the effective altruism thing, I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see like if and how the effective altruist movement recovers from this. So William McCaskill was on the board of one of Sam Bankman's other funds. Uh, he wrote a long Twitter thread basically saying that it seems like he was duped and he's full of anger. I think the word he used was rage towards Sam Bankman Freed and he's sorry and he's going to have to reevaluate the movement and some of the concerns that he waited too loosely about how this could like justify unethical behavior in the here and now. Um, it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. I think it's also of note that even, even there, like I have somewhat mixed feelings because another thing that is credited to William McCaskill, at least in part, is the giving what we can pledge, which basically says that for people like me, who sometimes are like, wow, like I could be doing a lot more for my community. Like I could be a teacher. I could have been a nurse. Yet here I am doing this podcast and writing books. It's like, all right, like give 10% of your income to charity. Um, doesn't make you a superhero. Doesn't make you, shouldn't make you self-righteous. But if you can do it, like, why don't you? And that's like a really simple idea that has had a profound effect on me. Um, so it'll be really interesting. And, 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 and this is like inside baseball because I read that book and I really liked it, but I couldn't help. But like, I just kept coming back to this, like it, it's such in conflict with Robert Persig's, like, I just want to write a good sentence. And here we are, like the conflict has exploded. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's, the only thing I'd summarize with is that, like, again, it's it's the ability to see both sides or both ends of the spectrum and that we do need both. And I think whether you, you know, give 10 percent to charity and the giving pledge or like or you are a teacher or what have you, like, I don't know, like it's it's I guess what I'm coming down to is like it's it's wrestling with that nuance and complexity on this 
kind of long-termism versus effective altruism. And if you go too far in one direction, like it's going to shape and shift your mindset. And I think for some of these guys and gals who maybe are already kind of diluted um, to a degree, and, and I don't mean that in a negative, I just mean that if you by definition are worth you know, $50 billion or whatever it is, you're going to be disconnected from the regular everyday life of, of people. You're not going to know what it's like to be a teacher or whatever have you. Like sometimes if you're already that diluted, then it's going to push you to that extreme. So to me, the takeaway is like use these ideas as, you know, interesting thought concepts, but also like realize that like we've got to come back to that that middle ground as well. And I think here's where competing philosophical schools can be really useful. So in a situation like this, Sam Bigman Freed could have drawn upon Rawls' veil of ignorance, which basically says that when making a decision, you should put yourself in shoes of the person that is stands to be harmed the most and then make the decision. So if on the one hand, Bankman Freed's like, you know, I'm, do- I'm donating this stuff to great charities. And I think he was most involved in like pandemic preparation, even before COVID and like constantly saying we need to think more about pandemics. And he was clearly right on that. So in his mind, he's like, whatever, a few people like are going to lose their savings, but pandemics, man, that, that could wipe out everyone. Well, if you take a Rawlsian approach, you'd say, well, what if I'm the father of two that had my savings in your fund and now I'm broke, then would you make that decision? And the answer is, of course not. And I think that that can provide a really good counterbalance to um, to the extreme. It, it's zooming in and zooming out, man. Like you got to have be able to go both ways, that psychological flexibility. And I think when, unfortunately, we, we sometimes get stuck. It's like a muscle. Like if you don't stress the other side, gets gets atrophied. And I wonder if last thing I'll say is part of the reason that the effect of altruism is so popular with um, like the tech titans and the tech elite is because a lot of them come from engineering backgrounds where like it's binary, one, zero, yes, no code. And effective altruism is like engineering philanthropy. It's like, this is the most effective charity. You do this, not that. And the real world is often messier. And maybe that's why people like Elon Musk can build world-changing technologies, but they treat their people like they're ones or zeros and they're assholes. I mean, it's why the big tech book is uh, Peter Thiel's zero to one, right? You either win or you don't, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I think there is something towards that, like engineering is great. Don't get me wrong. I have relatives who are engineers, all that good stuff. But oh, you said it. Drink, 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 drink. Uh, all that good stuff. Our drinking game. And I, I don't think I've sworn yet. I probably have. But anyways, go on. Just want to make sure our fans out there are still playing the game. And half our fans are like, who? As long as you're not on your this? commute it, or have any kind of problem with substances. Okay. Anyways. I don't even know what I was saying there, but I think what it is, is like, you know, engineering, you know, and kind of what it takes for some of these tech bros to be successful sometimes has that like binary thinking and that, that kind of winner take all zero to one, whatever I can control. There's also kind of often a, like I can control more than I actually can control. 
um, in there. So, you know, knowing that, we've got to prepare or like have something to counterbalance it. It's like, and whether that's on the individual basis of you counterbalancing your thinking, knowing if you're like scientific or engineer based with the opposite side, or as a societal basis of like, hey, maybe we have too much power in people who think in this way or see the world in this way. And we need to give some more power to people who maybe see it in an entirely different way. Cause if we don't like, we're going to be on the extremes of, you know, the utilitarian promise of our future trillions of people and neglect the 8 billion who are currently living. Yeah. What'd you say, Jeremy Bentham on acid? Yeah. Don't be Jeremy Bentham on acid. <laughs> Be Rawls sipping tea for every day. You're Jeremy Benson on acid, and then maybe you come out somewhere, uh, somewhere in the middle. All right. Well, if you made it this far, thank you. We hope that you found this discussion really interesting. I think the main takeaway is a lot of these frameworks are tools, and often tools conflict with each other. And that doesn't mean you should go all in on the direction of either, but to have that flexibility to hold both at the same time, which is really hard, and that's why a lot of people don't do it but it's also really important. Uh, in addition to hopefully learning a thing or two about philosophy, effective altruism, long-termism, and human behavior, this also gives you a framework for wrestling with the dualities in your own life between long-term and short-term goals where you might have values that conflict and um, just serves as a reminder to try not to throw the baby out with the bathwater or if you're going to go to an extreme, just to be really clear on the potential cost. And then, of course, I think the resounding theme is um, we, should, we should choose our heroes wisely. And perhaps what we should actually choose is a world where we don't need to have these heroes because everyone is just good enough. And if everyone was just good enough, we wouldn't need these massive charities and we wouldn't have nuclear weapons to begin with. But that in and of itself is probably a two utopian view. So here we are stuck in the middle. <laughs>